From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And hey, if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm guest co-host Katie Mullally. First this morning, Cool Science Radio's John Wells talks with author and journalist William Cohen, who tells the story of General Electric, GE, you know, the company that brings good things to life. Cohen writes in his deeply researched book, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. Then we delve into the world of piracy on the high seas in the 17th century with historian Dr. Daphne Giannakopoulos. She tells the never-before story, never-before-told story of Sarah Kidd, the wife of the infamous pirate Captain Kidd. Were pirates gentlemen or bandits in the 17th century? It's a story of culture, of the power of the wives at home, and the science of piracy centuries ago. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest is William Cohen, who has written Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. This is the story of General Electric, GE, you know, the company that brings good things to life, the once darling of American capitalism with so many successes over its 130-year history is now broken and in pieces as three separate companies. William Cohen, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, John, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you uh, with us this morning. Why don't we start with the early days of General Electric, GE, in the 1850s. How did GE come together? Well, uh, I have to sort of speed you up to 1892, which is when it uh, actually started. Uh, you know, the strands of the DNA were, were earlier with uh, both Thomas Edison and some other competitors who uh, made... Uh, the first uh, uh, pieces of equipment that created electrical impulses uh, and created what became the electric power grid. Uh, and that became obviously uh, a revolutionary change in the way uh, people uh, you know, lighted their homes, got power, uh, electricity was obviously a hugely important uh, development and discovery. Uh, you know, people used to light their homes with, you know, whale oil and candles and along comes electricity makes a big, a big difference. Uh, so basically, the, you know, there was Thomas Edison's Edison General Electric, uh, which he was actually a minor player in by this point. Uh, the CEO was a guy named Henry Villard, who had been a Wall Street banker who became a, a railroad entrepreneur and had become very wealthy. And he was backed by J.P. Morgan, the actual man. And then uh, outside of Boston in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, Charles Coffin, uh, who was the real brains behind this whole operation, uh, uh, took over his father's shoe company and decided he wanted to get into something a little sexier and also uh, decided to buy out a company that had gone into bankruptcy that made these uh, electrical power devices. Uh, and he just, and his company was doing... Uh, very well, much better than Edison's company. And he decided he wanted to buy Edison's company and uh, his investment bankers and venture capitalists in Boston 
uh, decided that, uh, and, and JP Morgan decided it would be a great thing to combine the two companies. So in 1892, without Thomas Edison's consent or knowledge, uh, these two companies were uh, combined. Uh, Thomas Edison uh, quickly got sort of pushed out, and that was the end of him uh, in this company. And that's how GE uh, was formed. I will say one thing other quickly is that a year later was the financial crisis of 1893, and GE almost went down the tubes. Uh, at, at that point, uh, they ended up having to buy their debt back at a discount, uh, which sounds familiar uh, these days, and uh, saved the company. So. Uh, and then, of course, they learned uh, uh, not to to do uh, make those kinds of financial mistakes again until, frankly, uh, you know, the last ten or fifteen years when they repeated what they had done uh, in the early eighteen uh, nineties. One of the fascinating things to me uh, that you wrote about uh, is that when when you're in business, you want customers, you want people to buy your products from you. Uh, certainly, if you're in the shoe business. Uh, people need shoes. There's a there's a there's a good demand for for shoes, and you write in the book, and I just thought this was really interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll quote: "It's hard to imagine today, but there were no grids to deliver electricity to homes and businesses. There were few, if any, electric appliances, and it was a serious challenge to convince customers that the electric light was preferable to whale oil or candles. And yet, these gentlemen put this together." And they went for it and they built this company and they uh, basically went around the country and showed people the utility and the fascination and what you can do with electricity. It's, 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 it's a great story. And I don't know if uh, any of your listeners uh, had watched that uh, show, I think it was on HBO, but you know, the Gilded Age, mm. which was uh, sort of a funny show, but uh, kind of addictive in its way. Uh, and I think in one of the first episode, maybe the second episode, they had this scene in downtown Manhattan uh, where they were celebrating uh, the uh, lighting up of, uh, you know, electric lights in a, in a you know, one square mile of downtown uh, uh, Manhattan in the in the 1890s. And that was GE's doing. That was, uh, you know, they created that electric grid that uh, ultimately uh, resulted in that. And it was a big celebration. I mean, this was a big event uh, back then. Uh, and it was an incredible uh, uh, technological discovery. But, you know, we obviously have parallels today. I mean, uh, you know, we take the internet for granted uh, quite clearly. But in the 1990s, literally 100 years uh, after the founding of electricity, you know, people were scratching their heads. What's this internet thing? You know, there's that famous Katie Couric uh, clip uh, on the Today Show. What's what's internet? Uh, but, you know, uh, so people uh, need time to uh, adapt to new technologies. But once they do, they sort of go for it fiercely and then sort of take it for granted. And I think that that's clearly what happened with electricity. And uh, it's an amazing discovery. And it was one of many, many, many amazing discoveries that GE made over the last uh, you know century and a quarter. Uh, which was sort of what makes this its demise so so sad uh, in many ways. Yes, it sure does. And in the '80s, there was not a self-help business book that did not prominently mention General Electric, um, or, or a Harvard Business School case study, or uh, maybe any MBA uh, uh, program, program yeah. had some sort of 
a study for 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 General Electric and and Jack Welch was, I mean, he was the man. And uh, as you said, the first light bulb, the jet engine, the X-ray machine, CAT scanners, um, first radio broadcast, first home TV sets, first electric cars. This this was a company that that innovated and and uh, got their products to market quickly and backed them up supported them it's it, it it was quite a story well and and that's you know frankly uh john why I, why I wanted to tell the story um you know i worked at ge capital uh my first two years uh, out of columbia business school financing leverage buyouts of all things which was an absurd thing for a former reporter to do uh turned now current journalist author uh uh but you know it was an amazing company, uh, but I, I thought, well, now how did this all come apart? I mean, it was flying high when I was there. I mean, it, it, you know, Jack Welch made it the most respected company in the world, the most valuable company in the world. It would be like if, you know, Google suddenly imploded. Wouldn't, we, wouldn't that be an incredible story? Wouldn't we want to know how the heck that happened? And so, yeah. you know, my journalistic curiosity got got the better of me and you know it was a big thing to bite off i must say it took me a lot longer than i thought it would and you know it's a big book but it's an incredible story so i hope it's worth it to your audience to to potentially think about reading it uh but i just wanted to know what happened so i took a blank sheet of paper and i started at the beginning 1892 and I, and I wanted to see what the DNA was that uh, was the founding of this company, which I did not know. Uh, and I wanted to know uh, how it all uh, came together and then how it all unraveled. And, you know, the arc of this narrative is incredible. I I mean, you know, it's it's it just an amazing story and a, and, a, and a little bit bittersweet and sad. And I know Jack Welch, if he were alive today, would be incredulous that this thing has come apart uh, relatively quickly uh, after his uh, death and uh, you know, you know if if Apple or Google or Microsoft, uh, these companies that we literally revere, uh, you know, had this happen to them, we'd want to know why, and that's why I wrote this story. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with William Cohen, who has written Power Failure: The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, and not only <clears throat> did they have this incredible management structure and managers under the tutelage of of Jack Welch went on to run Boeing, Honeywell, Allied Signal, Warner Brothers, Discovery. I mean, they really had quite a program. Maybe maybe you can talk to us and and help us understand what matrix management is because because that's unique in itself. Well, I'm no uh, you know management consultant, uh, you know expert. Uh, John, but uh, you're right. Uh, Jack uh, had this incredible ability to both be both to be both decisive and open-minded at the same time. He uh, allowed, uh, he encouraged his direct reports, his management team to take risks to run their business. He engendered an incredible amount of loyalty among them, and you you mentioned. Uh, you know, who I call the three Davids. Uh, you know, you've got Dave Calhoun, who now runs Boeing. Uh, you've got David Zaslov, who now runs Warner Brothers Discovery. 
uh, and Dave Cote, who was the incredible CEO of Honeywell, uh, ended up making Honeywell more valuable even than GE at the time. Uh, you know, who all got their start at GE, all working for Jack Welch. I mean, David Zaslov uh, was part of the team that started both CNBC and MSNBC under Jack Welch. Jack Welch just loved those ideas. Uh, Dave Calhoun uh, was a superstar uh, at, uh, at GE, uh, ending up running the GE's jet engine business and sort of falling out with Jeff Immelt, uh, going to the Blackstone Group and then being tapped to run Boeing. Uh, uh, ironically, after another uh, guy, uh, Jim McInerney, who had been uh, in, in line to succeed Jack Welch, uh, but lost out to Jeff Immelt, was the CEO of Boeing. So, I mean, the, the number of, you know, the, the CE, the GE coaching tree, you know, I, w- I went to Duke uh, and we talk about the Coach K coaching tree, the number of coaches in college basketball and in the NBA who uh, learned under Coach K. That same idea, you know, applies to Jack Welch uh, and the number of incredible CEOs that uh, now run uh, companies uh, all across America and the world that got their start at GE. It was it was a laboratory. In, and I don't know whether it was, you know, official or not. You know, they had Crotonville up on the Hudson, which was their management center, which they're now selling, which is another sad part of this. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it was deliberate or intentional, but there was something in the culture and in the in the in the attitude of the of, of the of the company that led to these great managers, uh, you know, some of whom stayed at GE and others, of course, who left to become CEOs on their own. Uh, that was extraordinary. Yeah. And matrix management, it's, you know, you might have more than one supervisor, some are on a solid line, some are on a dotted line, right. but it's a, it, it's a way of, of, of connecting the uh, authority and the responsibility and uh, checks and balances so that you could, you could build your business. I mean, many of these people did so well because because they were running these businesses and they were allowed to run them the way they wanted to. And and, and maybe you can uh, define for us what Six Sigma is and, and what the significance is for the GE businesses. Sure. Well, first of all, John, just back to the, the matrix idea for a second. You know, uh, another thing that Jack uh, felt very strongly about was moving, uh, not only did you know, these guys and women, you know, get to run as CEO of these big businesses. Businesses, had they been on their own, would have been among the Fortune 500 on their own. Uh, so he gave them a lot of responsibility. But he also moved people around all, all the time to to have them dabble, uh, and more than dabble, to run various other business lines that GE was in. So, you know, you may have been running uh, the... Uh, uh, the jet engine business at one point, but then you're moving moved to the power systems business. By the way, uh, a jet engine is really, uh, you know, uh, the power systems business is really just a jet engine turned on its side, if you think about it. Sure. Uh, but, you know, so he moved people around. They got to know everything, you know, all sorts of different business lines in the company, which gave them an incredibly uh, well-rounded uh, education. Uh, you know, as for Six Sigma, this was a, a, a way for GE to Jack got totally fixated on this. Uh, it was start an idea that was started at Motorola, probably originating in Japan, but Motorola adopted it 
and then uh, uh, Jack's former uh, wingman, Larry Bossidy, who was the vice chairman of GE, who had gone to Allied Single, Signal, uh, CEO, adopted it at Allied Signal. And then so Jack thought, well, if Larry Bossidy is doing this at Allied Signal, I better do this at GE, which is just a way to reduce uh, dramatically, uh, if it's well implemented, the number of flaws and mistakes in the manufacturing process. Jack uh, believed uh, strongly uh, that by doing that, GE would become more profitable. And he basically you know, insisted uh, you know, against, frankly, the desire of much of the workforce. It's sort of like you know, with Elon Musk saying to people, you know, either you, you know, triple down on your devotion to Twitter or leave. Jack didn't quite do that, but he basically insisted that everybody go through uh, Six Sigma training and he created you know, black belts and blue belts and green belts and people who were very good at it. And they're the ones that got promoted and got the bigger bonuses. But it actually was very effective for a period of time. It did uh, improve GE's manufacturing uh, capability and, the, and, and decrease the number of flaws. I think people anecdotally would know this, you know, on their own, just from the things that they bought from GE that actually seemed to improve in quality uh, over the years. Uh, Jeff Immel pretty much abandoned Six Sigma. Uh, and, uh, you know, that sort of went by the wayside, but it did work for, you know, maybe 10, 12 years at GE and uh, very, very effectively. And Jack was totally devoted to it, even though I'm sure he didn't understand what it was all about. Well, it wouldn't have happened without him because, uh, because it's hard to do. And it's, it's, it's uh, difficult to imagine a division manager saying, oh, we're going to do this Six Sigma because it, it does require an investment. It does require retraining. It, it's a, it's, it's a whole new approach, but he really, he really made that happen. Um, let let me ask Very you this: true. when when Jack was a finalist for CEO, he had to duke it out with all these other finalists, and he said it was torture. It was something that he didn't want to do to the person that took over for him. And I remember the late nineteen nineties and two thousand when all that speculation of who would succeed Jack, and he sort of. I don't know what happened, but he seemed to have, have be, been quite enamored with Jeff. And and there were people on the board who said, nah, he's just a sales guy and you need someone that has broader business experience. Did Jack have a blind side? Yeah, I mean, that, that uh, bake-off, that succession uh, process in the late 1990s, that was the greatest show on earth. For a while um, <laughs> you know front page of the wall street journal all the time um and it, and, and you know it came down to jeff immel uh jim McInerney, and and robert nardelli um and uh, you know of course i was uh totally uh, intrigued by all of that and wanted to know what really happened uh so and, and with jack choosing jeff um so you know, you, you point out correctly, John, that uh, Jack really didn't like the way he was selected because uh, all the five finalists were brought up to Fairfield for two years and they sort of had to hang around each other and sort of watch each other, you know, flex and, uh, you know, peacock in front of Reg Jones. And he and he hated that process. He, he you know, he thought it was like this weird beauty contest. And he and he decided that he wasn't going to do that, you know, to his uh, three finalists. So. He made the decision to keep these three men out in the field where they were do, you know, running their businesses. Uh, uh, Immold running medical systems, McInerney running jet engines, 
uh, and Nardelli running power systems. And then he came up with, uh, in the shower one day, this idea of creating a COO to each of these guys, a chief operating officer, because he had also decided that whoever got the job, of course, would be the CEO. The other two guys had to leave, though, which is a very odd decision, if you ask me, because, you know, you're losing two guys with incredible talent. But that was what Jack decided. They had to go. And so he was thrilled with his brilliance of coming up with this idea of these COOs immediately slotting in to become CEOs once these other guys uh, left the company. Uh, and and so they weren't in Fairfield. He didn't see them every day. He didn't watch them preening and trying to you know suck up to him. Uh, and he didn't wasn't able to see their flaws, uh, you know, on a daily basis. And they would come up to Fairfield for other reasons, you know, to uh, do their budget reviews with him or to get their uh, annual review and to find out what their bonus was. Or to they were each on the board of G Capital, and so they'd come up for quarterly meetings there. And essentially, uh, you know, he didn't get to see them on a day-to-day -day basis. So it really became down to who was the best politician, who was the best at, you know, uh, you know, swanning in front of Jack and who who was Jack and being human, uh, who was he going to sort of gravitate to, uh, you know, on a personal basis. And that became Jeff Immelt because Jeff, you know, uh, was literally a CEO, looked like a CEO at a central casting, you know played football at Dartmouth, big frat guy, Harvard Business School, uh, you know, he's, you know, tall and big and, you know, handsome, you know, you know, Jack, sort of everything Jack wasn't, you know, right. Uh, and he fell for him. And that yeah. was kind of a, a mistake in the end, which Jack admitted to me in our very first meeting in very graphic terms, which, you know, really, you know, surprised me utterly uh, when we first had that meeting. That he had messed up. He had messed up and it was admitting it to me on the record and it would be you know, part of his legacy, not unfortunately a great part of his legacy. Well, as you point out in the book, uh, there are people that think that he didn't take criticism very well. Jeff didn't and that Jeff right. uh, really didn't listen very well, that maybe he right. overpaid for acquisitions. Maybe he undersold some um, uh, assets like NBC um, and, right. and those sorts of things. But you also have to think about the timing of this. Um, six or seven days after he became CEO was 9-11, the terrorist attacks. And GE had heavy investments in reinsurance and in airlines, and their stock took an immediate hit. Um, so there were there were challenges from the very beginning. And I'm, I'm not saying that Jeff... Uh, you know, was was not responsible for any of this, but it it does seem like he he got a pretty bad start there. Well, you know, he did. He told me that he only had one good day uh, his first year <laughs> of CEO, which was on September 10th, which was his first day in the office. Uh, you know, he got uh, selected the Friday before. And then, you know, September 11th was the next day. He was out in Seattle that day uh, to meet with the CEO of Boeing. You know, GE made the jet engines on those planes, uh, reinsured the buildings downtown. Uh, uh, you know, NBC uh, didn't have any advertising for a week or so, costing the network hundreds of millions of dollars. The two employees were killed. Um, you know, it was a rough start and not, you know, Jeff was like, you know, on on a stairmaster in his hotel room, you know, out in Seattle, when he when he saw what was happening, and quickly had to decide what to do, and you know, 
you know, everything changed. And then you combine that, John, with, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley law, which was passed, you know, a couple of years later, which required CEOs and CFOs to certify their financial statements and, you know, tighten the regulations. And Jack didn't have any of that either. So Jeff had a, yeah, it's definitely fair to say Jeff had a very, very different uh, economic uh, environment that he was trying to run this company uh, than, than Jack did. Jack kind of, you know, if you think about it historically, the period when Jack was running GE was those 20 years was an amazing uh, time, uh, you know, for the American economy. You know, the stock market beginning in 1982 to, to 2001 just, you know, was basically a, a, you know, a jagged line, but, you know, up and to the right. Uh, in that, even including the crash of 1987, when the market fell 22.6% in one day, GE quickly recovered from that. So Jeff had a very different uh, economic environment, but still, you know, he there were many warning signs along the way that he, I believe, he ignored, or, or, and as you suggested, that when he did get into M&A deal heat, he tended to overpay for companies. Uh, or undersell them, uh, you know, and not really structure the sale process the right way. Uh, you know, I, I delineate many, many of these instances in the book. Uh, uh, you know, and it could have been different. It just points out, you know, to the importance of the CEO in any uh, running any company, uh, and not just GE. And Jack, you know, took responsibility for that. It was his biggest decision that he had to make, and he kind of blew it. So you have the, the CEO of the century. You know, the guy who made GE the most respected and valuable company in the world, kind of screwing up the biggest decision that he had to make, which was the choice of his successor. You know, and then, you know, he was very emphatic about having made that mistake and taking responsibility for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so makes for quite a story. And uh, William, I wanted to ask you, uh, General Electric historically has a very solid board. Many of the board members are CEOs of their own companies, and they're also a hands-on board. Major decisions need their support. And doesn't the board bear some responsibility for these successes and failures with 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 them uh, acting as a checks and balance? Uh, how How did this all go so wrong for the board? I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, the the board bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for what happened here. Uh, it's it's a, an unbelievable abdication of uh, corporate uh, governance responsibility, uh, and they hid from me, which made it even worse, in my opinion. You know, uh, most of them uh, wouldn't return my calls, wouldn't talk to me. Now, some of them did, so I'm grateful to them. But the ones who were leading. Uh, the board at that time, you know, would not engage in any conversation about what would happen. And, you know, for a long time, being on the GE board was like the greatest, you know, accomplishment of your corporate career. You're like, if you got asked to be on the GE board, not only did they pay you a ton of money to be there, and there was, and then, and they did have a lot of meetings and they were very involved, but still, it was very prestigious. I mean, if you could swan around and say you were on the GE board, that was like the greatest thing you could do. Um, but they just did not hold Jeff Immelt's feet to the fire. They did, you know, he was able to manipulate them. And when he did not like uh, board members pushing back on him, like say Ken Langone did, who was appointed by uh, Jack Welch to the board, he got rid of them. Yeah, uh, uh, right. Sandy Sandy Warner, who was the head of J.P. Morgan, 
uh, pushback on Jeff and Jeff got rid of him too. So, uh, you know, that's not corporate governance at its best. That is a major mistake. And then for them to not own up to their responsibility uh, by hiding from me when I was uh, anxious to talk to them, uh, again, cowardice of the, uh, you know, on the extreme order, which, you know, it just happens over and over again. I mean, look at, uh, you know, Sam Bankman Fried and FTX. There was not even a board. Of directors, Elon That's Musk right. doesn't have a board now. It's Twitter of any a substance. So, you know, boards of directors exist for a very important reason. And uh, Jeff uh, Immelt just, you know, I think manipulated his board around his fingers, and they were they realized that if they challenged him, they'd be gone, and they didn't want to face that. William Cohen has written a fascinating book, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. This is a book that should make its way to Under the Christmas Tree. Uh, and we want to thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio, and we wish you continued success with uh, all projects. Thank you very much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. And that was author and journalist William Cohen, interviewed by Cool Science Radio's John Wells. His book, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. We'll be speaking about the true story of Sarah Kidd. She was the wife of Captain Kidd, the pirate, when we return. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Before he was executed in 1701, Captain William Kidd was one of the most notorious pirates to prowl the seas. But few know that he had an accomplice back home, his wife, Sarah Kidd, a woman whose life is a lesson in survival, resilience, and resourcefulness. Joining us now to tell the story of Sarah Kidd for the first time is historian and journalist, Dr. Daphne Palmer Genicopoulos. Her new book is The Pirate's Wife, The Remarkable True Story of Sarah Kidd. Daphne, welcome to Cool Science Radio. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, I think we should just start with what made you interested in this story and when we weave it into a, a story on a science show, we, we have to start with the painstaking research that you did. Right. <laughs> well, what got me started on this was in 2002, I was commissioned by the New York Times to write a freelance piece for a museum special section on the Witta Pirate Museum in Provincetown, Cape Cod. And it was in seeing those artifacts of the pirates, of those human, human artifacts of a bone, a shoe, a navigational instrument, med medical instruments, uh, silver coins, buttons, buckles, that I realized that these were just ordinary men. Prior to this, I didn't know anything about pirates. I thought they were like Johnny Depp, you know, I thought, or or they were peg-legged like, uh, like the character in uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Treasure Island. Um, but it led me to believe that these were just ordinary men. And the captain of this pirate ship named Sam Bellamy had a love interest on Cape Cod and then I realized that these men had relationships on land that we didn't really know much about. 
So I explored it further and I wrote my dissertation um, about these pirates. And, and it was writing my dissertation that I, uh, which I later rewrote completely to turn into a trade book, The Pirate Next Door, the untold story of 18th century pirates, wives, families, and communities that I discovered Sarah Kidd. And I discovered her because in writing about Captain Kidd, one colonial governor said that Captain Kidd may be available for a privateering voyage if his wife would let him. And I thought, who is this woman, this powerful woman that is so influential about with this man who is a very, very, at that time, he was a very well-respected mariner and sought after mariner for his skill as a, as a mariner. So I, it, it led me to, to find out more about her. And how I found out more about her is, as you know, that many women in the 17th century were invisible because they couldn't write. And Sarah Kidd could not write. So she did not leave a journal for me to help me piece her life together. She did leave a number of primary source documents and she lived a very long life. She was 74 years old when she died in 1744, which is extraordinary for a woman to live that long. And she had five children. So she survived childbirth, which was amazing because many women died in childbirth or the children never lived to adulthood. Mm. So I followed her trail, but I also, in addition to finding her primary source documents, I visited archives where I knew where she had been, and those were in New York and Boston and Rhode Island, and she had spent time on Block Island in Rhode Island, and I traced where she had been. I walked those places where I knew she had been. I also found a lot of resources in the Admiralty Papers in the National Archives in London, and they sent me digital images of the documents that I needed. So London, the high tech sends me via internet, these eight, 17th century documents. And I transcribed over 250 of them, took me five months so that I could understand the world that Captain Kidd and that Sarah was involved in. Um, I also found a lot of documents in the manuscript room at the National, I mean, at the uh, Library of Congress, but also Captain Kidd left some very important uh, statements that gave hint of their very strong relationship. Yeah. So um, Sarah Kidd was 15 when she was first sort of married off by her father. And by the time she was 21, she was twice widowed. And Captain Kidd was her third husband. Um, but she always presented a very resourceful and sort of powerful. Um, and, and she was very ambitious. And I'm wondering how that fit in with other women of the time. She was a merchant. like I think they called it a she merchant, called yes. her a she merchant, like many women. But there was something even more special about Sarah Kidd. What, what was that? Why was she so ambitious? Well, I think she came from a back, she came from a well-to-do background. 
She was well educated for the time. Um, she had lost her mother by the time she was 14 when she arrived in New York with her widowed father and two brothers. Um, I think that loss of her mother was very influential in her having to find her way. Um, but it's very clear that she had a strong influence from her mother because she was, here she was 14 years old when she arrives in New York and one of the wealthiest bachelors in New York who was much older than her married, wanted to marry her. And there were many other women in the colony that he could have chosen. And he had lived there for eight years. So he had his pick of, of, of the, the women there, but he chose Sarah and she so showed an unusual maturity and uh, composure, I believe. Certainly she was very strong to, and she was obviously physically attracted, attractive because she eventually had four husbands. So she was, she was a, um, a force in her own right, but very, um, she was described as lovely and accomplished. So she wasn't a, um, you know, a, a, um, a rough around the edges. She was refined, cultured, and a, an attractive person to be around. One of the things I find very fascinating with the whole story is not just Sarah's life, but how you were able to reconstruct everything about their life from the rugs, from, you know, what they ate, how they drank, the detail that you put into this really, it's, it's extraordinary. It's more than I've ever seen before in terms of historical, not even novels, but historical stories. How do you go about reconstructing and finding that much detail to put into a story like this? Well, that's very nice of you to say, and thank you very much. Um, I spent more than three years researching Sarah Kidd's story, and I have spent 20 years researching pirates and the culture of um, the colonial period. So I have read thousands and thousands and thousands of um, primary sources and books and, and really have gotten a sense from all that I have pieced together. I've also interviewed a lot of people who are experts in the field to fill out what I didn't know. For example, um, what Sarah would have worn. I um, went to an exhibit at the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston that had an exhibit on colonial clothing and I interviewed the archivist who put the, the piece to the, the show together. So I really went after my experts when I couldn't find things that I needed, but I read everything. I read every footnote in books and I follow those footnotes. I often contact the authors and ask questions so that I could paint a world that was very clear for my reader and for me, I mean, I could not stop thinking about Sarah. I start my, I'm at my desk at 5.30 in the morning and I go until my husband says, dinner's ready at seven o'clock. And then I have a notepad by my nightstand and I think of Sarah during the night if I come up with an idea and I write it down and then I go explore that area too. 
Well, in addition to the detail that you write about with our daily lives, I was fascinated with the information that you gained from the book from 1684, The Buccaneers of America, and the pirate life and the pirate structure was, again, something like we all assume it's going to be a Johnny Depp or, you know, the peg leg captain, but it was a very different social structure. Yes. What did you, was there anything surprising in what you learned for this book regarding the social structure on a pirate ship? Yes. And that, and that book that you're referring to was written by the ship's surgeon, Alexander Exequium. And um, I loved that he was the ship's surgeon. So, I mean, who would know more than he would? One of the things that surprised me was that pirates had um, health insurance a form of health insurance, a form of life insurance, a form of retirement. And one of the things that really surprised me was that there's honor among these thieves. If a pirate died in action, his share of the loot was smuggled halfway around the world to be given to his wife or his family. And I loved the idea that these men were not what we really thought they were. We always thought pirates were one-dimensional characters because certainly that's what they appeared in, in 300 years of literature and movies and plays and ballads, but they aren't. They are very normal men who, who turned to piracy for many reasons, for freedom, for money, but also um, for a way to support their family when they had no other alternatives. So what surprised me was the fullness of these men, the, the structure that they arranged for themselves, which was their own world on a wooden, wooden boat. Completely, um, they thought of everything. I mean, even retirement, if, if they got tired of being a pirate, they could just pay a hundred pieces of eight and catch the next ship from Madagascar back to New York. They had to supply their own food and drink, but they just catch the next ship and go back into colonial society. And many of them um, just went back into colonial society. A few of them married governor's daughters. And it was, I mean, we just don't think of these men of having these lives. and. Many of them, when they went back into colonial society, the communities embraced them and protected them from the authorities. Hmm. I love the idea of these being underdogs. They're not just sociopaths as everybody thinks they are, although some of them were and terribly violent. But, but Captain Kidd himself was, he was not a man with a black heart. Yeah. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Daphne Genacopoulos. Her new book is The Pirate's Wife, The Remarkable True Story of Sarah Kidd. And Sarah and William Kidd were, they were high society in Manhattan. It's my understanding that there's a very fine line between a privateer and a pirate. What is the difference? So a privateer like Captain Kidd is hired by the monarch to go capture enemy ships. They serve as an auxiliary to the British Navy because in wartime, the, the British Navy doesn't have enough uh, 
ships and captains to, to serve to uh, protect the country. So they hire out these extra men who have their own ship and their own crew and privateers have investors, for example, Captain Kidd's investors with, uh, for his uh, voyage that was his demise, his investors were the King of England and some of the Lords in Parliament, the most important men in England. And um, they are sent out on a um, voyage and it's very specific. They have a contract which is called a letter of mark and reprisal. And that is a very, very specific contract that tells them what they can do, how long their voyage is. Captain Kidd's voyage was supposed to be for one year and the percentage of the take. And the captain and the crew get, a, of course, a much smaller set percentage of the take. The reason that there's a fine line between privateering and piracy is that many of uh, a, a captain and his crew realize that when you get out at sea and you're away from the authorities and nobody knows what you're doing or you can't be reached very easily because of course this is low tech society with no cell phones or internet, um, they decide who wants to share all this profit with our investors, we're doing all the work. So they often, often turn pirate. And also in the case of Captain Kidd, his voyage was for one year. He did not find any prizes. He did not find the, the reason he was hired, which was to capture enemy ships. So he extended it um, another year. And after two years, he still didn't have much to show for it. So he extended it to a third year and his men at this point were mutinous. And um, they said, we're, we're not just gonna take French ships. Captain Kidd had um, captured two French ships, but that just wasn't enough. And so they went after other ships and their downfall was that they went after the East India ships, which were British ships. And um, that's where the fine line is. And it's very, it's a very gray matter. It happened all the time. And Captain Kidd's turning pirate, he claims was because his men were mutinous. And they were, it was, it was an angry time. Even his ship was leaky. The brand new ship, the Adventure Galley was leaky. So here he is three years at ship at, at sea, nothing to show for it. A lousy ship, his men are hungry, they're sick. Many of them have died and, and things were really bad on board, including his governor, his gunner who mouthed off to him. And that was a bad scene too, with him having a violent exchange. In, in terms of, you bring up the health of the men on the boat. And, you know, as we know, scurvy was very prevalent in those days. And because you couldn't have anything that easily prevented scurvy, like a little vitamin C here and there, and, right. and not even that much. But in terms of like, preservation of food and and how they would be out to sea for that period of time and still try to maintain some semblance of health how did it go in the 17th century it was it didn't go well the food the water was often went bad because by the time they were out in their voyage which was for many months if not for a year or more the water turned bad 
So they, that's why they drank beer and rum. And the food was preserved in salt. And the biscuits, the reason they were called hardtack is because they were so hard, they practically broke your teeth. So the food was very bad. And they had to continually try to find new supplies. For example, the reason they went, one of the reasons that at Ascension Island, which is where the Mariner's post office was under a rock with a hole in it near the harbor is where captains would leave mail and pick it up again at a very low tech system of the post office. But there was a rich supply of fresh turtle at Ascension Island, which is a small island in the Atlantic. So captains would make Ascension Island their destination to get fresh food. And they would capture these turtles. They were very easy to capture because they were kind of slow. And they would put them on the ship and turn them on their backs. So the decks of a, of a ship would be covered with turtles <laughs> laying on their back, and um, which would stun them. And then they would flip them over and cook them when they were ready to have them for their meal. We were talking earlier about the social structure on the ships. What about with Sarah Kidd and other wives of the mariners or the pirates? Was there any sort of social structure for them back at home on the mainland? No, no, because they were they were on their own. You know, Captain Sarah was a mariner's wife. There was no protection for them. There was no life insurance or pension or anything like that. And and when Cap, when Captain Kidd turned pirate and was um, convicted and executed, then Sarah was out. She became destitute. They seized all her belongings. She was a social outcast. And she had gone from high society to an out, uh, an out, a destitute outcast. So for mar many mariners' wives, this especially pirates' wives, th there was no hope for them. And there's a really interesting petition that I mentioned in the book of 47 Madagascar pirate wives who petitioned the queen, Queen Anne for help. And it's, it's really a clear indication of how desperate pirate wives were because if their husband didn't make, didn't collect any stolen loot and send it home to them, you know, there was no paycheck. They had nothing to live on. And it, it by Sarah signing that petition with 47 other pirate wives, it shows how desperate they were. And what they were asking the queen was, please pardon our husbands because, and, and let them keep their stolen loot because it's all we have to live on. And they are our breadwinner. Well, and in reading about how much these pirates brought into the, into the ports and how they would sell it for you know, dirt cheap to the merchants and the merchants would then, you know, charge exorbitant prices to, you know, the mainland consumers. The fact that these women really received nothing unless it was intentionally set to them by their husbands was just a reflection of the inequities of the time. I know Sarah had to fight for, you know, goods from her first husband, deal yes, with yes. deaths of her second husband. 
And I really hope that there was some treasure buried by Captain Kidd that <laughs> she eventually found and kept to herself. I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. <laughs> uh, we, I, I, I don't know that that actually happened because when Sarah was a social outcast, essentially, it wouldn't have been possible for her to go and retrieve any stolen loot because it would have been very evident that all of a sudden she was just fine. And, and then there's no evidence that his um, loot was ever found. In fact, 300 years later, people are looking for it. People are contacting me and saying, can you just tell me where it is? <laughs> So I, I do share with you, I, I wanted Sarah to be restored, but she took care of herself. She did what any woman had to do in the 17th and early 18th century. And that is their, their standing in society was through their husband. And so Sarah grieved Captain Kidd for two years, which is the longest she grieved either any of her previous two husbands. And um, she remarried successfully. She was married for 25 years and started a new family. And she just knew how to not say no. She knew to keep, she just never gave up, which is just remarkable. And the fact that she didn't get sick and die during all the stress and the tragedy and the heartbreak that she experienced and was able to keep her family together. She never lost sight of her children in protecting her children. And her, her will is very indicative of the strength of her um, faith. She was very religious. She was a very strong Anglican. And it, it, it is what kept her going, I believe, as well as I think she just had a natural constitution to survive. Well, it is an incredible book. We love to hear these stories of women that have never been told before, women especially who are powerful and make their their place in history, even though you're helping actually now by writing this book, The Pirate's Wife, to make that place for her. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. The book is, again, The Pirate's Wife, The Remarkable True Story of Sarah Kidd. Our guest, Dr. Daphne Palmer Genicopoulos. Daphne, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I cannot wait to give this book to my mom. She's going to love it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn and Katie. It's been a treat to speak here, to speak with you all. Thank you for having me. And that was Dr. Daphne Genicopoulos. And her new book is the never-before-told sto story of Sarah Kidd, the wife of infamous pirate Captain Kidd. It is The Pirate's Wife. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City, 89.1.